Welcome to Bonafide, conversations in good faith about faith with Jonathan Storman. We have a breaking news story to tell you about. A plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center. Today we've had a national tragedy. Christianity, it's under siege. Study after study shows Christianity is not the force it once was. But we are going to protect Christianity. Even before COVID, a growing number of Americans were moving away from organized religions. The group called Religious Nuns has steadily grown. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Bonafide. Today is the last episode of the season, and I'm here with my friend, Brother Richard, who in other circles is called Dr. Richard Beck. Um, Brother Richard, this is the first time that you're on my podcast, and so we have a mutual friend, um, Luke Norsworthy, and every time you're on his podcast, he makes fun of me, and I was wondering, what, as a trained psychologist, what pathologies are behind that? <laughs> this is the trouble with this relation, these, these relationships. I've always feel triangulated in an unhealthy way between you and Luke. And so I, I just... By Luke, yes. Yeah, yeah. By Luke, yeah. And so, um, yeah, let's, let's lay off of Luke's pathologies but let's just say there's some diagnosable stuff on the table with luke norsworthy okay i, I will leave the actual imagination. <laughs> does it rhyme with narcissism <laughs> yeah oh, that makes me so happy okay so brother richard you are uh Shepherd at the church that I used to be the preacher at. You are one of my favorite people in the universe. You and Jana are just wonderful people. Um, and I've been doing this for the last few months where I sit down with my friends who have walked away from the Christian faith. And I try to do the best of us. Like people who have gotten their Masters of Divinity, worked in churches, worked on foreign mission fields, and um, found the way of Jesus no longer compelling or sustainable. Um, and the reason I, you came up in every episode, because you and I have talked about this for, gosh, as long as I've known you, so for 22 or for 12 years, um, we saw back, or I saw, I started seeing it mid-2000s, um, after 9-11, my friends from college who had a vibrant faith in high school and college walk away, and, and then that just continued to accelerate um, in my time in Texas, and you were one of the most helpful people through this, so... Do you mind, I don't know, maybe first sharing your own story of how Christian, because I imagine as you listen to some of these stories, they sounded familiar to your own biography. Yeah, I, I started writing online on my blog, uh, Experimental Theology, in like 2007, and then my early research as a psychologist and my first books were, I think, a part of that wave back in the mid-2000s, late late 2000s of deconstruction. A lot of authors were writing about that journey. The word first began emerging 
uh, and so I think a lot of people early on were were of the deconstructing fold were attracted to my early writings. And because I was sharing just a lot of my own spiritual um, autobiography, how I think around graduate school into my 40s, I'd say about 20 years, I was probably functionally an agnostic. I'd describe myself at that time as a practicing Christian. Um, I leaned I leaned into orthopa- uh, orthopraxy, the practice of the faith, rather than the belief. Yeah. And that, that was helpful to me during that season. Um, but but over the last 10 years, which people that know my story, mainly triggered by my experience of um, uh, faith on the margins, um, I minister in a maximum security prison at a Freedom Fellowship, which is near to dear to your heart, um, a mission church planted Highland that reaches out to the economically marginalized in our city that I, I kind of I, I kind of began a journey of reconstruction and and also kind of noticed this trend. I think a lot of people have noticed that a lot of the voices that were part of that deconstruction season no longer identify as Christian anymore. Um, and I kind of started worrying about progressive Christianity in general, deconstruction in general, about what the next thing was. Like, after, yeah, I get it how you all of us have to go through a season of our faith maturing and growing up and that the faith that we were given when we were 16 is maybe not going to be the same faith we have when we're 66. And so we're always going to be working through some things and developing some things. So I get it how young adults are deconstructing their faith. They must. It's important. But then what's next? And it seemed like what was next for a lot of people was exiting the faith. And your podcast has highlighted a lot of what those stories sound like. Um, For my own reasons, as I described, I couldn't make that exit but then realized that I was in an unsustainable in-betweenness, that uh, just a constant diet of questioning and skepticism and doubt, as vital as those things are, um, as necessary tools uh, to deal with kind of some of the idolatry that sits in our faith, that those tools can't become idols in themselves, and that one actually has to say some positive things, one has to make some uh, investments. And so we call that now, obviously, reconstruction. So I engaged in that journey. And so my writing over the last 10 years of my blog is very different from the first 10 years of it. Yeah, deconstruction's a, a bit like chemo. You need it when you need it, and you don't when you don't. And um, I, f- I feel like there's some parts of, uh, you know, the faith that is, uh, you know, problematic, I- idolatrous. Um, you, you describe having faith as like a, a balloon, like it just got lighter and lighter, um, when you were deconstructing. Yeah. At Highland once I was describing, so, um, uh, uh, it was in a season where I think, I don't know if you were there or we were in between, uh, preaching ministers, but, uh, at the last minute, they asked some elders to take the stage and just share some of their faith testimonies. And so I, I talked about how I described during my little 10 minute faith testimony, how during my season of doubt, I had adopted a kind of technique, um, to make faith lighter. Like if faith, if belief was a heavy load, then I thought as a coping strategy, I could lighten the load by believing less and less, right? Just reduce faith to the to the essentials. And so I described that as faith getting lighter and lighter so I could, you know, carry it up the, the hill of belief. 
but eventually got so light as I described that Sunday, I felt like faith was so insubstantial and so light. Like I had so deconstructed it down to just wisps. It felt like holding this helium balloon. And I was just walking around with this helium balloon all the time. And eventually I just asked myself, why am I walking around holding this helium balloon? It, it, it's insubstantial. It's weightless. It doesn't have any gravity to it. And and I, the temptation was to just let it go, you know? And that's when I realized that I needed faith to become more substantial for me. Uh, not so light like a balloon that it was just a simple matter of releasing this thing that meant nothing. And I think that's what you hear in some of these podcasts. Faith gets whittled down, deconstructed to the point where it doesn't really mean anything anymore. And so that final move of walking off isn't a big climactic deal. It's just a slow drift into like, well, this doesn't mean much to me anymore. And I, I become indifferent to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like the things that stood out to me about this, I think that it helped some parents and maybe some church leaders um, and maybe some non-believing friends a little bit. But it, there's a few things that kind of resonated over and over again. One, I, one of the feedbacks I've got is like, hey, you just got a bunch of dudes on here. And I'm like, yeah, that's part of the point. <laughs> like, uh, out there, um, outside of one person, uh, outside of two people, they were white middle class men. Um, which is not to throw shade on white middle class men. I I am one, but it is kind of a phenomenon that is more for a protected kind of class. And I think, generally speaking. If, if I'm reading the data right, and I very much might not be, but when women deconstruct or deconvert from Christianity, they're more likely to go to something more like um, uh, spiritualism, New Ageism, uh, Wiccan, um, things like that, whereas atheism is primarily uh, a white, middle to upper class male phenomenon. Is that generally true? Yeah, one of the things I, I talk about in um, uh, my book, Hunting Magic Eels, is uh, that you know Charles Taylor, as people who followed your podcast up to this point, talks about this 500-year journey from enchantment to disenchantment, from a, a world where the supernatural uh, was taken as a, as a given um, to something that we're increasingly skeptical about. So the, ra the rise of the Enlightenment, rationalism, atheism. And that, that, that's definitely true. We do see rates of atheism ticking up. I think they're like around 25% right, right now. But it's not like skyrocketing. And so some people push back on that narrative, what's called the secularization hypothesis, that we're getting more secular. And they're calling it the myth of disenchantment. And the myth of disenchantment is that we're not becoming disenchanted. We are rather facing in front of us a a choice, a buffet, if you will, of enchantments on offer. And people are turning away from the transcendent, people are turning away from the transcendent enchantments of kind of organize, the organized monotheism. So, so Judaism, Christianity, Islam, to the imminent enchantments of uh, paganism, 
um, where Pan- or, uh, and pantheism creation, and things like that and pantheism, yeah, or or mm-hmm. new ageism, and so people do believe they might not believe in the resurrection, but they might believe in reincarnation. They might not believe in prayer, but they might get engaged in witchcraft, and so we're just shift. So enchantments are shifting, but they still persist and remain. And I do agree that you're seeing, especially among young women, an increase in pagan witchcraft, Wiccan practices. Uh, that's a huge thing right now. Or, or if not that, then kind of a kind of a potpourri of, um, you know, uh, spiritual but not religious. Spiritual but not religious. You know, you might burn some sage, do some yoga, you know, read some uplifting spiritual, you know, literature where we kind of curate a spiritual texture to our life to give you know we might engage in some wellness practices that kind of have a, a new age kind of slant to them and women are going to be more involved in that and they still even might pray they might pray to uh the mother god rather than the father god right so there's still a or the universe or but, right and and but you're right but among young men the journey is more towards like full-scale disenchantment and a rise of uh atheism um, the rise of kind of the rational culture you see you see among a lot of uh, i think western kind of silicon valley types arise in, in um in things like uh, stoicism right so there's this kind of this heroic stoic so the world has no meaning but through a stoical hero journey and you see a lot of this in jordan peterson's kind of work through like bearing with and ordering the chaos i i threw just this you know heroic stoical approach kind of reconcile myself to a meaningless cosmos that there's an appeal to i think certain male psychologies in the in the the valor and the heroism of that form of disenchantment where i think women i think because they tend to see the world more as holes and more relational are still going to want to explore kind of a a, a connection with the enchantments of the cosmos where men are more likely to be kind of individualists and go you know the 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 world is devoid of any sort of meaning, and so therefore I must, from within myself, uh, slay the dragon, as as a Jordan Peterson mm. might say. You know, you you one of the things that you have said through the years, I can't remember if it's blog or lunches together, but that uh, at, one of the interesting things about when people deconvert is that often the very thing that causes them to deconvert is the very thing they become. Like, for example, like uh, the touch of stoicism that is in Christianity. We grieve, but not like those without hope. You know, um, the, or, you know, the, the, yes, the world is broken and, and difficult, but in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. You know, like, uh, and then when they leave Christianity because in the face of suffering, they're told, you know, to to have just a touch of stoicism, it, it seems so offensive, and then they become stoics. Um, I, I've seen the same thing true with, didn't you say that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, there, there's an irony where um, that, that, like obviously, as you've heard in in the podcast this season, you know one of the things that trip people up about Christianity is the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. And 
and there's two ironies about that for the deconverted. Number one is, and this is one of the things I've said to churches it over and over and over, is that I think the devil uses our compassion to erode our faith. That's a, that's a comment I make in Reviving Old Scratch, where compassion and love, yeah, compassion and love now erodes faith. Because we form our young people to care about all the world's suffering. Okay, so we give them these big compassionate hearts, and those compassionate hearts draw them to all the pain that's going on, and they become social justice warriors. They become really compassionate people, all to the good. But then when they stand out there in the darkness and in the pain, then they start asking, where is God in all this? And so the, the very compassion that we give them erodes the faith that... Uh, instilled them that compassion to to begin with. Um, and the other irony is that the Christian tradition also preaches a degree of kind of stoical, uh, kind of a stoical posture towards the suffering of the world. In, in a couple generations ago, we called this, you know, a, as the Lord wills, you know, like, like, uh, or, or it's Job saying, the Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? There used to be faith had in it some stoical acceptances of, of what we would call the providence of God. But but nowadays, if you preach a degree of stoicism um, because of our compassion, um, that that that, re that doesn't resonate very well with people. They get kind of triggered with that view that we must resign ourselves to um, to the will of God, what the previous pagans would have called fate, right? The Stokes would call that fate. Um, so there is an irony that the little bit of Stoicism that Christianity preaches, even though it ultimately is a message of hope, uh, right? As Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Like, so you, we have to bear with. So there's these constant encouragements in the, in the New and Old Testament for um, trust, for endurance, uh, for patience, um, all of these build character, right? So those traits we like we've uh, rejected those, um, and then yeah, we deconvert and then we become Stoics, <laughs> you know. So so instead of a little bit of Stoicism, we go full bore, and and I'm like, well, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, uh, anyway, I, I think yeah, I think there's a lot of ironies involved in all that one of the more concerning uh, examples and this is somebody who didn't want to do a podcast with uh, me about this but leaves because the church is racist and then a decade later is like racist and uh, he's a benevolent racist but he would say look the world's just inequitable that's just the way it is, you know? And now evolutionary philosophy and all this stuff, like, hey, it sucks, but you got to live your life. And so the very thing, um, and I, again, I don't have permission to share more of his story than that, but I, there was a Christianity Today article that came out um, this week, actually last week, about white evangelicals leaving church if in the south if white evangelicals who left church were a denomination they'd be the biggest denomination in the south and um what's interesting is the christianity today article was like 
to be sure, to be fair, a lot of churches in the South have implicitly endorsed racism, Trump, you know, all these kind of things. But when we interviewed the people who left, uh, it turns out, and this is hard statistical data, it's Christianity Today, white millennials, or white, uh, white evangelicals leaving southern churches, um, that those people, after they left, become um, less trusting of people, less generous, less volunteer-oriented, more uh, stronger law and order. Um, they support gay marriage, but they also, um, that's the only place it, it goes more what we consider liberal. Everywhere else, it's MAGA. It is like hardcore MAGA Christian, you know, and they would still consider themselves evangelical probably, but they would go towards Christian nationalism. And the point that it was making, because it compared that to Catholics uh, leaving in New England after the sex scandals, um, and how what happened there was they became more of the political affiliations of their region and in more hard coarsened ways. And that basically one of the things that church does is mediates and humanizes. Like one of the one of the things the article said is that church made people see things from another position. From another like, because they probably went to church with a Democrat or a Republican. And so they couldn't say all people were. Anyway, all that to say, a lot of people are leaving churches because of Donald Trump's election and whatnot. Um, at least um, everybody that I interviewed. I have one guy that I tried to interview who um, is a nun who's a MAGA. And he, um, he, he knows it's Nietzsche or Jesus for him. And he left because he loves owning the libs. He loves it, and yeah. and so that was the he's the outlier. Is pretty addictive. So what what I'm saying is like it seems to me in my experience, the people who are leaving for the reasons they're leaving, they're actually walking toward the very thing they're walking. They think they're walking away from. Like you want a more humane, you know, compassionate society. You want. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's. Fine. Am I overselling that? Article, well, I, you know, I think, um, you know, one of the criticisms I've had about hunting magic eels is people said, you know, I, I agree with everything you're saying about these historical changes um, and the forces of disenchantment. But when I, but my lived experience, people who are walking away from God are walking away because they see Christians behaving badly. They see all the scandals of the church. They see the Catholic, they see the Catholic abuse crisis. They see evangelicals um, storming the Capitol building on January the 6th. They see um, the sex scandals um, The you know, they've listened to the Mars Hill, the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast. And so it's, it's the, it's the bad behavior of the church that is causing them to walk away. And there are, that is a, that's a fair thing. And that's a that's a long and multifaceted conversation, um, and and so I I definitely hear what you're saying that that the church is doing important leavening work um, in amongst people and populations 
that would not have that otherwise. That the minute they exit church, their only spiritual and political formation will become QAnon and social media, you know, and maybe having those people sitting in the pews, listening to some sermons about the Good Samaritan and and a pastor who wants to try to have a conversation about race uh, from time to time. Like maybe it was, it'd be better to have that, that person who kind of votes right or is tempted toward racism to sit in the pew. Um, they might be right. They might be problematic in the pew, but it's better to form them there than just, yes, release them out to click on anything that goes after their appetites, especially when we know that the algorithms of social media are forming hate on both sides and and you're right like so where be, where yeah so if, so i do think that there is a place for the local church a good healthy local church where kind of an alternative spiritual formation can take place and that and that brings me to a second point which is when people talk about the church behaving badly very often it's it's again still driven by social media uh because the only news and vision you're going to hear about the church or all of this is all this bad stuff the the algorithm of google is not going to put on the top of your feed the story of miss jane um holding the hand of her husband who's dying from cancer and and how these lovely saints have walked and shared this journey together like nobody will see her story because what it, what is interesting about the, the 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 intimacy and the love and the care or the stories of well i, I go to pastors and i say that here's the here's the tragic thing about the story of the church we know all the bad stories but if i got a pastor and said tell me the stories of the little of the hidden lives you know that famous quote about the hidden life Tell me the story of the hidden lives that you see every day in your church. Who are the heroes? And they would just have story after story after story after story after story. And here's the thing. None of those stories will ever trend on Twitter. They, they will never trend on Twitter. So when we're talking about the church, I agree that all the bad things exist out there. But again, as my point in Honey Magic Eels is, it's a matter of attention. If you only consume the bad news and you miss the good news, then you're never really getting a full complex picture. And I think people that have spent time in local churches, healthy local churches are there because they know that there's a life there that social media will not provide. Um, anyway, so there's so much more to say about that. You can do a whole other season two on the church and not just faith. Um, but that's just a little bit coming alongside what you're saying. You know, Tish Harrison Warren has that great article where she talks about growing up in goodness. And, you know, she's an um, Anglican priest, writes for the New York Times. But it, it's so, it, it rang so true to me. Like at one point with Greg, he was talking about uh, an experience that seemed like very much an outlier at Highland where some Air Force person was wearing a shirt that was endorsing 
racist violence against the war in Iraq, you know, pre, this is back when Cope was running the show, so just, you know, such a dumpster fire. <laughs> just kidding, Mike. Um, no, but it's such an outlier, because Highland, generally speaking, is pretty pacifist, and um, not very, like, there's not going to be endorsements of war there. I would imagine a soldier would feel more uncomfortable than, you know, um, a Muslim almost, uh, after a few months of knowing the kind of culture of Highland, and I don't mean that negative about Highland at all, but he had a, a story about going down front for communion, which is a thing we do, and uh, there was a guy in front of him that had a trash uh, trash can full of with brown limbs sticking out of it, and he said, United States Air Force taken out the trash since, you know, whatever the year the war started. And I was like, Greg, that does not sound like... I mean, I guess that happened, but... And so I just started telling about Daryl and and Brother Roy, uh, you know, and just the people at Highland who, like, the, the goodness is so... I, I don't know. For me, growing up in my church, I know I'm pretty sentimental about the church I grew up in, but it was really hard to be cynical about it. Because there was so much goodness there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. No, yeah, I, I agree. Well, and again, it's about like, like every every human thing is a mixed bag. And churches are mixed bags. Like, I, I, like I'm not going to say that that did not happen at Greg's church. I, I, that Greg did not witness that at Highland. I find that, yes, very hard to believe. Because Highland is the place where we held the prayer service. Um. Uh, during the war and I was the one that prayed for the en our enemies I knelt on the Highland stage and I prayed for Al-Qaeda um, the way we're supposed to pray for our enemies that's the church that hosted that prayer um, this is the church that started the peace in the Muslim majority world and we are still engaged in active peacekeeping initiatives in fact one of their scholars was in Abilene uh, talking to our church recently um, about peace between uh, uh, Christians and Muslims, right? Like, like so. Uh, that's the same. If that's if that's a story that came out of Highland, these are also stories that come out of Highland. And and again, you you can grab, um, and and that's why sometimes I don't know if it's the church because anybody could just cherry pick the church. Like, and you and I are tempted to pick the good things. You know, we. That's right. That's right. Church. And, and, and so I think it's important for people to point out the failures of Highland and point out the failures of Christianity. Like, like there, that's, that's what I was saying about deconstruction, dealing with idols, like, like those hard questions, even from skeptics and former believers are helpful in our idolatry. They can be gifts because we can idolize the church and miss that, which is why I think this podcast has been such a good thing, right? It's hard for some of these things to hear, but they are they are important to hear as well. And so I don't mind Greg sharing that story. I, I just think that there churches are way too complex to reduce to an anecdote. And I'm I can, I'm glad he shared it because I think uh, while it's it, it was a very rare thing to see at Highland, it's probably not a very rare thing to see in a church in the South. And Christian nationalism, I mean, I was I was all in with progressive Christianity in reaction to Christian nationalism 
when George W. was president, I just noticed there was like a lack of prophetic ability to speak a Christian voice. And so that's what pushed me towards and set me on a trajectory that I can, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to my friends. Like I, I was headed that way. Um, and the, you know, a lot of it was people like you kind of having conversations that helped me, Chesterton helped me. Um, one of the things that came up repeatedly was, uh, the Bible. That was the first thread that got pulled. So speaking of idolatry, um, I think rest, uh, reformation in general with the whole sola scriptura, um, is it leads to some problematic tens, trends like, um, it, you know, if you if you tell people the Bible is inerrant, um, the inerrant word of God, and your faith stands or falls on it, then you have given them a scientific modern worldview before they have ever opened the Bible. Um, inerrant. That's. I always say when people try with gotcha questions on me about inerrancy, is the Bible inerrant? I'm like, it's way better than that. Uh, because the only way you can answer that question, yes, is by saying, I agree with the modern enlightenment project of all truth must be scientifically, uh, science is the arbiter of all truth, and the Bible falls under that. Um and it seems like a position in like fundamentalist churches or other, you know, it seems like a position of conservatism, but it actually is like a hundred years ago's liberalism, in my estimation. Like, they took liberties with the world that God says exists and the Christian tradition to accept uncritically all the ideas in the Enlightenment and then push them back on the Bible. Uh, do you have anything... Do you want to say about that, the Bible, and, and the way I described it? Does that ring true to you? No, yeah. I, I, there was a, um, I think I'm remembering his name properly. Um, I think it's Father Stephen Freeman, who's an Orthodox theologian. But he, he makes a really great observation that there is a kind of a literalness that you see in both fundamentalists and atheists. That's the fascinating thing. The, the new atheists, when they read the Bible, read it exactly like the fundamentalists do. They both read it re really literally, you know, and they're, and, and they're, and they're not just a literalism, but kind of a, um, a, a literalism of treating everything as empirical. Uh, so, uh, Hunting Magic Gills is coming out in a paperback edition and I got to add yeah! chapters. Yeah. Yeah. So this coming spring, it'll come out with four new chapters. But one of the chapters is tight, entitled, uh, borrowed from uh, Joseph Ratzinger, called The Primacy of the Invisible. And, and, and the point of that chapter is there is this kind of empirical literalism that you see among atheists and even biblical kind of fundamentalists that misses the invisible or the contemplative aspects of these kinds of things. So, I mean, so two quick things about the Bible. One... One of the things I tell my college students is one of the dis things I despair about is that we we give you a vision of the Bible that makes sense when you're 13 or maybe even when you graduate 17. 
And, uh, but then you go to college and your biblical education kind of stops, you know, um, and, and like you go off to a secular university or wherever, you know, and so you stop taking Bible classes. Maybe you stop going to church or whatever, but, but your the questions that you begin asking begin growing, but, but you don't invest. And I think you heard a little bit about this with, from Andrew's podcast, right? The questions grow too much and we don't have enough intellectual, we don't catch up on the, on the biblical side. And so I do think you got constantly have to invest and getting better and better and richer and deeper, as you keep pointing to the the riches of the entire Christian tradition. And so, when people criticize the Bible, I don't want to be too critical, but some of it is just kind of a lack of investment on that side. Like like those those answers are there. Better hermeneutics are on offer, and sometimes you say, "Well, here is my questions, and here is this literal way of reading scripture, and these don't match up, so the Bible's wrong." And and I, I don't know if that's doing justice to to scripture. I do think the other worry I have here, the other worry I'd have here is that Protestantism, there is a kind of a, a vulnerability that Protestants have, because Protestantism is a, a, a religion of the book. It is prone to putting too much weight on the book, and we are we we are now I think in the Protestant tradition reaping the consequences of that formational investment where the best of the tradition that says no no the book is is just trying to point you to the word the word you know it's just a tool to get you to christ and if you are kind of obsessing about the book is it inerrant is it contradictory how many angels really appeared around the tomb you know i mean you get in all those kind of weird things did the did the sun really stand still in the sky is this com- cosmology plausible what about dinosaurs and noah's ark and all of that kind of stuff and you start really deeply investing in defending the book then you're then again that's a losing game you know that you're not you're, you're, you're again. That's an idol, right? The Bible becomes an idol. And here's the last thing I would say about kind of Christians defending the book and apologetics is like so much Christian apologetics and training about Scripture is trying to defend the literalness of Scripture. And I said this to some of my college students last semester. I said, "Hey, here, here's a question. Let's say you win that argument." I mean that is to say let the creationist argument. Let's say you win that argument. You 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 train your young people that it was a literal six day creation and Darwin was absolutely fundamentally wrong. Let's say you win. So you give them a biblical worldview. Agreed? Okay. Does that win produce more faithful, loving, joyful, kind? you know, Christian people? And the answer is no. Like, like being able to, to to argue against Darwin does not produce the fruits of the Spirit. And in fact, I would suggest that that winning that argument might actually malform you in some of the hmm. fruits of the Spirit. Like in, pride in, like, and, it, yeah. It, yeah, pride and... and might not make you more loving, make you might more argumentative and combative. And so, so I, I think, some, I think we're, when it comes to spiritual formation, I think what I'm saying is the ways we're trying to defend scripture are actually not really helping 
um, produce mature Jesus followers. And so I, I, I'm okay with apologetics. I think it's interesting for some people and helpful for, you know, for some people. But apologetics never produced, you know, love. As, as Paul says it clearly in scripture, knowledge puffs up. Puffs up, yeah. Love builds up. And so... Anyway, all I like to say is I, I think, yes, you can get a little over-invested in trying to defend Scripture from its cr critics. And yet I also think the critics themselves haven't given the Bible its best gloss. Mm. Um, and I also think the last thing I'd say is something you've said repeatedly through the, this season is how if you look at the modern ethic of the modern world, like the social justice ethic of love winning – and that people are inherently uh, given dignity and worth, like all that goes back to the Judeo-Christian tradition. I think there's yeah. a pretty much a strong historical consensus. You've mentioned Tom Holland's book, Dominion. It's a good example of that argument. There's a pretty strong scholarly consensus that the ethic of the modern world is fundamentally Christian. And this is also Jordan Peterson's point. That, mm -hmm. that that the Bible is the operating software of the Western world. Like you don't understand yourself, even right. as an atheist, unless you know the Bible. Because the Bible created the behavioral arena in which you move. Here's a hilarious example of this. I encountered this the other day amongst a young person. Um, uh, uh, satanic humanism. And I just thought that was the funniest thing. And I'm and I'm like really, <laughs> So so here you want to be a Satanist, but 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 you still got to have love wins, right? Like like so you're a Satanist, but you still believe in the inviolable dignity of human persons and first do no harm. I'm like that's that's the most hilarious thing, is that is that you want to be a Satanist and yet still don't have the courage to reject the Judeo-Christian foundations of the Western world, you know? And so you build your Satanism, you build your Satanism on top of Jesus, you know, because you can't not go, I mean, it's, you can't become a complete moral nihilist and, and attract followers. Like, it's just ridiculous. So I thought that was the funniest thing. When Satanists, when Satanists are functional Christians, I'm like, well, Jesus is one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jesus is Lord. I I saw a shirt in the DFW airport last year that said, uh, "Smoke meth, beat whores, hell Satan." And I was like, "Okay, that person is," and that seems more like in line with Satan. <laughs> like, uh, I'm saying, hey, you know what? You know what? That that's honest. Like you're like you're owning you're owning the moral darkness, and I'm like. Um, fine. Like, like, uh, everybody gets to where they're going, right? Like, so what, what, what was it? Smoke math? What was it? Smoke Beat math? whores, hell Beat Satan. Whores and hell Satan. Like, hey, play that string out, right? You, you, you get the world you're living toward, you know? And, and so at least that guy, at least that's what I think is, at least that guy's an honest Satanist. These Satan, humanist Satanists to me just, I thought was hilarious. And, and, and I think that's kind of the, that, that point you made about your person earlier. It's either Jesus or Nietzsche. That, that's the contrast, right? You know, it's either your will to power or, and a lot of it's, a lot of it's not really the will to power. It's the will to pleasure, right? I think most of us. Right. Aldous Huxley. Just most. Yeah, most of us just settle for kind of a soft, 
um, a soft hedonism. You know, I, I'm going to get my job. I'm going to have my mortgage. I'm going to have some vacation time. You know, I'm going to have my lovely bottle of wine, my whiskey collection, my ski vacation. And, 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 you know, that, that's, that's a good life. I don't need all this Christian stuff. And, and I think that's why Jesus says it's hard for a rich person to go to heaven because you can just kind of, kind of wrap yourself in that cocoon of, um, affluence. And so that's the other thing about some of these people that kind of blow off Christianity is this kind of, you can often see it as a kind of, a the prerogative of the elite, you know, cause, and that's one of the things that shook me up about worshiping with the poor is, is because when you're with the wealthy, um, who are so insulated from, from things because of their affluence that of course their lives are lovely, you know? Right. And, that's right. Uh, and, Check your privilege the, is yeah something I've. And when you're with the poor, you see kind of where 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 the gospel really matters. I think the poor bring bring the reality uh, of God more into view, and that's kind of where I recovered my faith. So I tell people this: like, what's the, what 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 helped you reconstruct? I said, worship with the poor mm-hmm. in prison. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, so one of the people that came up repeatedly was the guy who wrote Homo Sapiens and Homo Deus, is that how you say um, Yuval, uh, Yuval, a Jewish historian. Um, so part of my theory on, do you know who I'm talking about? Have you read that stuff, yeah, Homo Sapiens? Yeah, I've seen it, but I haven't read it. So, so give, me the, give me the thesis statement, and I'll give you my thoughts. Um, so... Uh, it, it's very optimistic, progressive. Homo Deus opens up with, in 2019, him saying that we have now conquered the three main uh, things in the world. Poverty, um, plague, and war. And it's bad timing <laughs> for that. Yeah. But he, the he's... Ba- tell the Ukrainians that. Lovely book. <laughs> yeah. it out for a book club in Ukraine. Yeah, or COVID. We conquered plagues, war, and poverty, which is true for a very small cocoon portion of the world. But I I was surprised. It disproportionately came up. Um, If I was to describe it, and some people love it. I mean, it is a very, I think, naive take on the human condition. And you're you're kind of an evolutionary psychologist, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Isn't well, it, I mean, it, I'm, I'm conversing in it. I don't, you know, it's a tool. Okay, yeah. So his, I think he's using evolutionary psychology to talk about how human beings, you know, we're the apex species. We uh, cooperate. So we basically, and I've said more than once on this season, like you, you really think we cooperate? I don't know how how mask played out in your neck of the woods, but you know, it was. It didn't seem like we were co- we're not that cooperative. It has a very optimistic, sentimental view yeah. of human nature, mm-hmm. and a very high view of technological progress. Which it, it's weird to make him and, and uh, whoever who's the guy who wrote Enlightenment now, um, Stephen Pinker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what Pinker. I thought. Okay, so they all are given these stats that are incredibly like, uh, and and they're you know you can make stats say a lot of stuff. But 
you know, like things have gotten a lot better by certain metrics, but we're more likely to die by our own hand than we are by an accident now. And so they don't account for all like the moral despair, depression, or um, the sense that life is doesn't matter. Like your your uh, Steven Weinberg quote, the more the universe becomes comprehensible, the more it seems meaningless. Um, they... So I was just wondering, like, their view of human nature tends to be, and again, these these are mostly white, middle-class men um, who life works well for them, not just because they're white, middle-class, they're all, you know, they're, they're good human beings, like, but they're very, they strike me as very sentimental of human nature, and as somebody who's had, like, you know, sex, sexual abuse, uh, I, I just deal with the consequences so much. It, it doesn't seem like I could just say, if you were to describe human beings to me, it doesn't seem like I have to stretch to give you much evidence that, yeah, we're good-ish, but that's not the entire truth about us. It's kind of fun, Francis Bufford's HPTFU or the human propensity to mess things up. Like, how would you describe sin in a way, as a psychologist, just, I mean, what would you say to this kind of like, most human beings are morally neutral or good? I mean, what's... Yeah, no, I think... Um, yeah, we can have a debate about human human nature. So, so... So Steven Pinker's book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Enlightenment Now, this book you're referring to, uh, Robert Wright wrote a book a couple years ago called uh, Non-Zero. Um, and there's some Christian impulses here. Kind of, You see this a lot in kind of like uh, process theology or Telehard de Chardin's Omega, Omega Point that intrinsic in, in the cosmos is built kind of a logic towards cooperation towards enlightenment and that uh and so inherent in all of that is this kind of thing pulling us towards a better future uh i mean to me that raises some metaphysical questions about what that logic might be because again back to the primacy of the invisible you're going to have to argue that there's something in the grain of the universe where the universe works is being drawn towards let's say love than than not right there's something uh pulling us that way and i i think you can there's some cosmic christology that can be pulled in there i think um there is some sense where there's a kind of a common grace to borrow from the reformed tradition that that's common grace is available to all of us and so this god has given these as gifts that if we can apply these gifts it does promote flourishing so i don't think any of i don't think progress itself is antithetical to the christian tradition and i think it actually raises some interesting theological questions about why this ability exists in something that should be inherently random and prone towards entropy um so 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 i i, I kind of read a lot of that with a very kind of, i think i think you can actually instead of hearing that as a, a knock against faith. In other words, I don't think we have to argue for like total depravity. I don't think we have to say that humans are totally corrupt to, 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 to use that as a question. But I do agree with your point about human nature 
having a kind of tendency that there's a definitely a shadow side to use Jung's terminology to all of us. And one of the and some of these optimistic people, I think, if, if they're going to start with the Enlightenment, they really do kind of blow past totalitarian suffering and the Holocaust. And this is why I think Peterson is interesting, you know, because Peterson keeps going back to the gulag all the time, you know, and he lays he lays the gulag on atheism. He lays the gulag on enlightenment that when idea, ideological, I, this is Dostoevsky's point in his book, uh, Demons, like when these ideological belief systems, they can captivate a society and, and drive them. And the last thing I would say is I, I do, I don't, I also think a lot of these optimistic visions are still riding, as you've said before, on the gas of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, they la they land on right. They land on human dignity and love and kindness as kind of the logic of everything. And my the thing I would say about human nature is how long can you ride on that gas? Because at some point you're going to get to a certain technological, let's say, tipping point with something like transhumanism. And and that, that technology will be available to the haves, but won't be available to the have-nots. And so you're, you, you know, you're wealthy and you can go down to the baby, you can go down to the baby store and say, you know what, I, I want, I want Jane to have an IQ of like 180, but I also want her to have her mom's height and volleyball ability. So she's going to be like this kind of like Wonder Woman person. She's going to be the perfect physical specimen. The cancer gene will be removed from her body. Um, right, all of it's going to be tailor made, and a poor person, you know, living somewhere in the world is going to not have access to that. So suddenly, you're going to have all these people who are like super smart, super strong, and super talented. And what I'm, and my point here is, is that built into human nature is a tendency to rank. Right? It's I would say what what is sin? Sin is this innate human tendency to rank by criteria of worth. And the one thing the Judeo Christian tradition has preached from the very beginning, going all the way back to Genesis, where we're all created the image of God, but especially in the New Testament, with Jesus going low, is that the people on the bottom are just as valuable as the people on the top. That idea began and was planted in the soil of Christianity, and it is the only idea that will save the world. And I don't care how much we progress, that belief that the least, right, that from, from dis disability, to the mentally ill, to the failures, to the poor, right? That those people are just as valuable as the people who are winning. I, the, the world cannot live without that seed planted in the soil. And so even if progress is going forward, it's going to need that constant restlessness, that prophetic restlessness that the Christian story is planted into the, the moral psychology of the world. And I would argue that if anything keeps us back from the complete abyss, it's that idea. And I don't mind being affiliated with the team that put that idea on the map. Hmm. I love it. Hey, we haven't really talked about hunting magic hills. So I, I want to do that. And then I want to ask you recommendations for parents and church leaders and people who are reconsidering faith or uh, think about leaving. So, you know, we mentioned um, 
Dominion, but other books like that, including your own. So one of the things I'll make anecdotally, and if this offends my uh, nun friends, I sincerely apologize. It's not universally true, but it is mostly true. I have asked every one of them on some level, are you happier now? And I've got a mixed bag of answers. But my observation is, as somebody who really does spend time with and love people who have lost their faith, because I, I see the temptation and I'm sympathetic, um, it seems like you're not. It seems like you're... Uh, and maybe you were pretending when you were back at church and when I knew you then, you were in a younger season of life. That, that also could be the case. But it seems like you've lost some of yourself. And I, I say that out of love, not out of like... And so the reason I'm bringing that up is because what you describe in Hunting Magic Kills, the first part of your book as a psychologist, is what the chalk outline around the body of God. God is dead and the chalk outline around the body of God in secular societies where secularism has increased is, is uh, I think, very compelling. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I call that, you know, chalk outline the ache. And this is like St. Augustine's idea um, that our hearts are restless and so they rest in God. And that, that in a post-Christian world, um, we've lost some of the kind of, I would say, kind of narrative and communal and metaphysical um, and social infrastructure that, that created human thriving. And, and, and with the loss of God in our lives, I think we're experiencing a series of kind of mental health consequences. Um, psychologists are for example, um, psychologists are now talking about what's called a quarter-life crisis. We, we all know about the existential crisis known as the midlife crisis, right around 40. But now we're having what's called the quarter-life crisis at 20, where young people seem kind of particularly lost. And I would argue that some of their feeling lost is because they've been severed from the rich meaning-making structures um, that was the, the Christian consensus. Um some people have described it as a crisis, a crisis of meaning. Um, so young men are lost. Um, increasing rates of deaths of despair. We're seeing uptick deaths of suicide, you know, drug addiction. Um, I also think we're seeing weird fetishes with entertainment culture, right? Where people are like are building identities out of like brand affiliations like Star Wars or marvel movies right so suddenly what you like as a consumer becomes a heroic identity uh we're i think we're seeing kind of the increases of political polarization politics becomes a heroic outlet for identity and because of that takes takes up too much of an imprint in my psychology so i think we're just seeing a lot a variety of social relational and political pathologies that i would trace back to the loss of god and and so I talk about um, that as kind of one way to begin a conversation about God in our age, about that, that feeling of ache, that feeling of longing or lostness um, in the modern world. God doesn't exist, but we miss him. Yeah. Um, so at the end of your book, Hunting Magic Hills, you offer four enchantments, and I find those uh, really helpful. Um, the Celtic enchantment and the charismatic enchantment and the liturgical enchantment 
are the most. Is the contemplative one you mentioned as well? Yeah, liturgical, contemplative, uh, charismatic, and Celtic is the three enchanted Christianities we can pull from. And that's just the big capital T tradition of Christianity. These are ways that, like lenses that you can look at life through. So for me, Eucharist or communion for Sea of Seers, uh, I have come to start thinking of, and I think this is true whether I think it or not, but as the actual body and blood of Christ, um, in the sense that if you put it under a microscope, because we started this podcast with me explaining to Luke how at the center of secularism was the disenchantment of communion. So I I think if you put communion under a microscope before and after it pray, it's consecrated, it still looks like the same. But I also think if you were there on the day that Jesus turned, multiplied the loaves of bread, and you were to put that bread under a microscope, it would have looked like bread. And so, for me, and and it's hard to talk about interior, interior experiences, but the attention that I give communion now, specifically after it's been consecrated, um, I feel like it is not a snack that is a symbol, it is a meal that is a miracle. And that's one example of a liturgical kind of enchantment, right? Yeah, you're you're basically re-enchanting uh, Eucharist, right? Yeah, it's not a memory of Jesus. It's not a memory aid, but it's a miracle. Yeah, so the re-enchantment of things that we already have, even Scripture, right? Instead of treating Scripture as a as a resource for an argument with an evolutionist, right? A practice of lectio divina, right? A practice of lectio divina is listening to Scripture for for you being addressed by the divine. So we can even re-enchant scripture rather than treat it as a, a, a book to argue about rather than a voice to be listened to. So scripture can be re-enchanted. Eucharist can be re-enchanted. Baptism can be re-enchanted. Prayer can be re Like all of those things in the liturgical traditions can be re-enchanted. So um, charismatic, you know me and Leslie are more charismatic than most Church of Christ people and you are as well. Um, although that was a hard season to get to, but your, your book, um, uh, gosh, not thinking in tongues. That's Jamie Smith. What's the, actually you blogged about thinking in tongues. That's why I went and got the yeah, book and read it. In tongues. Be yeah. Because freedom, I encountered that little, that little mission church and at the prison are more charismatic. And that's, that's a global trend, right? Christianity is exploding in the third world and in Asia and mainly that idiom is going to be charismatic Christianity. So I think if people want to understand what the Spirit is doing in the world, they need to kind of, I think, understand what's going on with charismatic Christianity. And ironically, the, you know, right underneath their own noses, the Catholic Church is doing more exorcisms in America than they have ever done in history. Um, and they're very skeptical before they do an exorcism. So they're not like, you know, the, the movie... Poltergeist was based on an actual priest experience with several different people. So, not that all that happened, but, like, this is really, there is a spiritual reality that we are not attending to. Um, Nat, uh, Celtic Christianity, which dudes who tell me that my church is the woods hunting, you know, like, all right, come back to church when your deer season's over, but there is something to that. That yeah, they sense. Been a, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go. Keep going. No, you. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. 
Well, yeah, yeah, they sense God in nature, right? Um, that that's one of the resources that I think we get. One of the people that people who are attracted to Celtic Christianity, like if there is any bridge of conversation between Christianity and paganism, um, and and nature religions, Celtic Christianity is a natural bridge because even pagans like Celtic Christianity because of its strong kind of uh, sense that the divine and the sacred come to us through through nature. Um, and I think a lot of people, that's a great place to begin a conversation with, with God. Like, I don't feel God in church, but everybody I've ever talked to experiences God in nature. Um, and so, and that's, that's so scriptural, right? The, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Um, so yeah, the Celtic Christianity helps bring in like, uh, the way nature itself is a sacrament. And I think C.S. Lewis had some, he has that quote where he says, you know, to the pantheist, um, they would say, if you could only see cancer or the slum for the divine point of view, and he says the Christian must say, don't talk damn nonsense, because we are a fighting religion. And basically, it's good, but, you know, natural law opens itself up to Nietzsche and some other stuff as well, but it's primarily good. Like, um... And the only part, even the suffering and the stuff that we don't like, is the brokenness of what is good. And so I like the Celtic enchantment a lot, especially being back in Arkansas. Um, I can see that being harder in Abilene. Just kidding. I know you love Abilene. I know you love Abilene. I enjoyed, I enjoyed visiting the Jonathan Stormick compound and riding, you know, four wheelers around with your your boys and and, and, your and the zipline. Yeah, and the zipline. It, it was it was it was very enchanting. My family loves you, man. They love Jana Moore, but they love you. Uh, oh, man, everybody loves Jana Moore. So, um, and then the last, well, I'll tell you what. Go, I cannot recommend Hunting Magic Hills enough. Go get that book if you are just, what if you've been listening to this podcast, you're the primary target for that book. And it's, it's accessible. Um, Richard's got a gift of making really complex ideas accessible. Um, as we kind of close out, Brother Richard, the question I've got from a lot of parents and church leaders are, okay, so that's what is happening right now in my own life or in my kid's life or in my sibling or something like that. What, is there a book? Is there, uh, and so, I mean, think about people who don't have master's degrees, they're, um, but they're, they're wanting... If, if the people who've been telling me the last 11 episodes are true, they didn't want to lose their faith, this happened to them, they didn't want to, what would you do, what would you give them early on? Is there any resources? Bible project, maybe? So, like, um, for, for people trying to reconstruct or for parents trying to raise children, like, what, what were you thinking about? Yeah, can we do, can we do uh, both? As a dad trying to raise kids, yeah, I mean, I, I would say as a as a parent raising two children, um, uh, I, I, there's many things I could say, but w one of the things I would say is I'd say three things quickly. Uh, one is they have to see you taking your faith seriously. Um, if they see you kind of opting in and out of church, skipping it, if they don't see you praying, if they don't see scripture being a part of your life, then 
they're they're going to get the the lesson will be very clear. This thing is totally optional and skippable. Okay. I also think so. I think I would say maybe the liturgical and contemplative witness of your own life. The other thing I would say is the moral witness of your life. I mean, the one thing that your children are sensitive to is hypocrisy. And one of the things I felt like with my boys is the dad they see at home is the same dad they see leading the church. And it's the same dad they see at the prison. And it's the same dad that they see um, when I'm at my work. And, and so when they see their dad and, and I'm not perfect, but they, they, that is, that is a whole person. That's not a fake person. Their Christianity. I think, I think if you asked my sons and said, Hey, is your dad faking, faking this Christian thing? You ever catch him faking it for other people? They would say, no, like dad's dad believes it, you know? And I think if you give your children that kind of primal sense that faith is that maybe they will walk off but they, they're going to look back on their families and kind of go like um my, my parents were legit you know I, I might not confess to be a christian more, but my parents were legit and that brings me to like a third thing which is holy memories i got this from dostoevsky's brothers care madzoff is that I, I do think that we are raising our kids at a very difficult season and that statistically speaking, they might leave. But there's this idea in the Brothers Care Madzoff that if we can implant that God can save us, if we can, if we all have one holy memory, that when we get to a point in our life that we can look back and say, when was I happy? When was I loved? When did I feel like the world was right? When did I encounter something holy and true and good and beautiful? And if they go back to some memory that they go, that was that time. Um, and it's often going to be sitting in that little church. It's going to be, you know, with Miss Suzetta at Highland. You know, it's going to be with their their family. If they can grab a hold of those holy memories, that that that's what you're trying to plant. But we can't ultimately force our kids to be believers. But we can plant that in holy memories of what faith is. That they look back on those memories with great affection and love, and God will use those as leaven and salt in their lives. Um, and the other thing I would say is you have to pay attention to the passions of your children. So my son Aiden was very, and I said this to your church when I came and visited, I said my son Aiden was very interested in social justice and still is. And I, my, my fear with a lot of conservative evangelical parents is when they hear social justice warrior, they, they're like, oh, that's culture war stuff. And I'm like, listen, that your kid cares about injustice is a grace and instead of like grinding against your kid you need to kind of say hey that thing that drives you right here's how jesus intersects with that passion so i I think you i think you got to be very situational and contextual because it'll be different those passions will be different with your kids you got to find the thing that moves their heart and then bring christ alongside it and this is one of the troubles I have with kind of like this kind of like just do a catechesis class at your church. And I appreciate what Andrew was saying last week, but the trouble with those kind of, you know, like, hey, let's get a curriculum and, and teach our kids a biblical worldview. Let's do the homeschool curriculum. Let's listen, man. Kids are too diverse to think that some 
formulaic curriculum is going to pop out little followers of Jesus, most of your intervention, most of your most profound interventions with your children will be specific to them with their specific pain or passion at a specific moment. And you must be attentive to those moments and bring Jesus alongside them in those moments. It's not going to be like doing the assignment, quoting the Bible verses. It's going to be that like, like they're going to get their heart broken or they're going to get involved in some sort of passion. And you, it's in those things you have to be attentive to. And so that's to me, I would say to parents, there is no curriculum that, that, that you're not going to create a factory as, as much as you were going to be a pastor and a care of souls. And all souls are distinctive and unique. So that's what I would suggest to parents. As far that's as people, super good. Like, yeah, as far as people that are deconstructing, I'd say, I'd say, I've already said some things, right? Um, put yourself in a different social location. Uh, vol- volunteer with the needy. Second of all, find a healthy church. Um, don't, don't think about church from the abstract. If church is for you and a social media conversation and it's not a place where you are known and being known and loved, then I would say give church a chance, a small, healthy local church. Um, and I, I would say, um, that instead of always reading deconstructing voices, may, maybe change your diet of reading and podcasts, like, like read some robust Christian voices, like Spufford's unapologetic. Like that was a really big book for me because here's a guy that was winsome and intelligent and got all the questions, but he was unapologetic about his Christian faith. Like those books um, really helped me. Chesterton, you mentioned, was a voice like that for you. One that was big for me is David Bentley Hart's The Experience of God. That book was big for me. It's pretty heady, but it was big. Um, I found so so anyway, read read intelligent Christian voices that are that are that are strong in their faith. I think that helped me a lot. Um, and the other thing I would say, the last thing I'd say per hunting magic eels is is I think in the modern world. We either go the cognitive path, right, to just turn this into an intellectual problem, or we go the emotional path where we're trying to conjure feelings. I think churches toggle between those two, right? Um, the, the path I would like to argue for is what I would call the perceptual path. That's the whole point of hunting magic eels. We're not trying to conjure up emotions, and we're not trying to reason our way to God. We're trying to see God. And to me, that is the path least taken in the modern world, that, that we need to train our people not to feel a feeling or to think a thought, but to see, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here, right now. And so it's the perceptual path that I think we need to invest in with our churches. I love it. That's, that's really good. And I have, I have found practicing a lot of hunting magic eels stuff even though we had talked a, a little bit about it that book was just amazing uh, I'm very grateful for you having written it and also for taking time to be on this podcast as we close out our first season so anything else you want to add brother Richard maybe a shot across the bow at Luke again 
we we will we yeah we'll leave Luke's uh, issues uh, for Luke. Luke is on a journey, and and all we can do is accompany him as, as friends, <laughs> as, compa- right. as compassionate friends. Um, That's right uh, through that journey. And so anyway, yeah, I hope people do look at hunting magic eels. Um, I do. I think you think it's doing something unique out there in the conversation about reconstruction. And if and um, and check it out. Coming out this spring will be a paperback, and it's going to have four additional chapters. They're, those are entitled um, "Why Good People Need God," "The Primacy of the Invisible," um, "Live Your Beautiful Life," and "Hexing the Taliban." That's my chapter on witchcraft: hexing the Taliban. So those are those those four additional chapters. So if you read the hardback, check it out this spring because four new chapters will come out and kind of add and deepen some points that I've made in the first edition. Cool. I'm so pumped you got into paperback, Brother Richard. That's Is this your first book that's been... Or did Unclean probably got a lot of published... Well, uh, no, this is the first one that came out in, 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 in hardback, and it did well enough that it's going to come out in paperback. So thank you to Broadleaf um, uh, Books for um, um, believing in the project and letting it come out in a second edition and let me write those additional chapters. So kudos cool. To I can't wait to read it. All right. Well, much love to you, brother Richard. Thanks for doing this with me. Uh, pleasure. Hey, congratulations on a really, I think important first season. Um, I hope there are more to come. I think you are, you're one of those few voices that are kind of engaging this conversation and you're not just talking to the insiders, right? Um, and so well done, my friend, and blessings upon your ministry in the podcast um, and there in Arkansas. Thanks, Brother Richard. Thanks for listening to Bonafide. If you like what you've heard, please share with your friends and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts.